I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. It's spooky season still. Yeah, you're going to be spooky all month. We will not have any episodes in the month of October that aren't spooky. What are we talking about? Speaking of our spookiness. We're talking about The Ghost Bride by Yang Chu, And I feel like I need to forewarn all of you that I am heavily biased about this book because I love it so much. <laughs> Well, that's good. It's a nice balance. I don't dislike it, but I am definitely probably not as biased as Maggie. I do enjoy it, but it's also not my favorite book. So that will be a good balance. Yeah, it's not like my favorite book either. But like, I don't know, man, something about it just really worked for me. Like I get very wrapped up in the world and the story. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we're here. The world building is really fascinating. So where do we want to start? I think for me, and I, res- I wish I had done more research on this, but when I first read this book before reading it for the podcast, I was reading it and also like learning about Chinese culture and East Asian culture and thinking a lot about different stories from that and different interactions and communications because I was thinking of moving to China. So this story for me, like as I read it the first time around, it felt to me, it symbolized all of that like differentness in terms of storytelling and communication because one of the things that kept coming up for me in my classes was that like Westerners are very direct, especially in terms of storytelling. And in East Asian cultures, it's often a journey to storytell. And reading this book, I was like, oh, this is definitely a journey because you're like towards the end and then all of this really heavy plot happens and it's not like it's not like twilight where we're waiting until like the last thing for any sort of plot there is heavy plot throughout this book but then it just gets really really heavy and we end up somewhere so different than from where we started i think it's because this book really easter like it easter eggs its stories they nest together so like there's so many there's like four or five parts to the story and so in the first part you're like introduced to the characters uh and her uh like general struggle which is that she is in a weird place where she's trying where people are trying to force her into being a ghost bride which means that she's going to be married to somebody who's already dead which is like a semi-common practice says the book but not for a young girl like her who's never been married before to be married off to a ghost of somebody who she hadn't even met. And it would be considered, like, you know, a pretty terrible fate, really, to, like, have this happen to her. And the pressures come from the fact that, though her father doesn't... He offers it up as an option to her, although he doesn't 
seem to want to force her into it, his family are very insistent. And then she gets visited by his ghost. And he is very insistent (laughs) that she marry him. So, like, that's the first layer of plot. And then in the next part of the story, she uh, gets really ill because of this haunting and is, like, kicked out of her body. So, like, that's the next part. And then she has to figure out what happened to her maybe, maybe not fiancé. So she has to, like, go into the land of the dead. And that's, like, the third layer of the story. (laughs) And it just, like, keeps getting deeper and deeper where, like, there's these miniature stories happening where, like, she goes on these arcs and these journeys. And you find out a little bit on those journeys. And then at the end, all of it, like, ties back together And that's, like, the heaviest plot moments when everything finally gets, like, totally knit together. And you find out what actually happened to... Oh my gosh, what is his name? I read the audiobook version of this book, and it was actually read to me by Yang Zichu. So one of the things that she said when telling us about what inspired this story, apparently... If you, if our Western listeners don't know, in many East Asian countries, you refer to people by their surnames. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the more confusing aspects, I think, for a Western reader, because for a lot of the characters, they are referred to by their surnames. And some of them have similar surnames. Yeah. So his name is Lim Tian Chang. Lim Tian Ching. Lim Tian Chang. Yeah. And so he's the ghost and he thinks he's been murdered. So part of it is that he tasks Lilan to go and like figure out who murdered him and stuff. Like there's this whole murder mystery aspect of it. There's, it's hard to explain the plot of this story because so much happens. But essentially the summary of it is this girl, Lilan, loses... (laughs) possession of her body essentially and so she walks around the world as part ghost and part not ghost trying to figure out what actually happened to this boy who is very forcibly trying to marry her from the afterlife because she wants to marry his cousin Lim Tian Bai yeah Lim Tian Bai and so she's like trying to use what limited power she has in the afterlife as like part ghost, part not ghost, to get what she actually wants out of life, which is a marriage ultimately where she'll be like happy and fulfilled and be able to be her own person, you know, and to be seen as a person. Because, you know, we're talking about 1893. Malacca. Yeah. So which is a city in what's now known as modern Malaysia. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> for her marriage really is like the only actual option, you know, to get out of life. So she is trying her best to like make that only option as good for herself as possible. And it takes us to some strange places in the afterlife, you know? Yes. Thank you for that summary. Do you want I'm to- sorry if it was a little nonsensical, but the book is like, it is sort of hard to explain unless you've read it. <laughs> And this book is popular right now. I mean, it's been a popular book because Yang Zichu, from what I can understand from my book friends, like Maggie, is a really popular author. But it currently has a Netflix television show, which I keep trying to watch. Yeah, I keep trying to watch and like can't get through. They change a lot. 
And then sometimes some things are like identical to the book, but some things are changed and the things that are changed like just don't work for me. That's what I've heard a lot of people say. I was excited about the show adaptation and then I heard the reviews and I was like, oh, I don't think this is going to be for me. I think that this author gained a lot more fame last year because she came out with her second book called The Night Tiger, which is also chef's kiss excellent. And I think that a lot of people got super hyped about that book and then went back to The Ghost Bride, which is what happened to me. Uh, I read The Night Tiger first and was like, hell yes. And uh, The Ghost Bride is the only other book she has published right now. But yeah, it's very, it's very exciting. I really like her writing. Yeah, she's a great writer. One of the things that was really interesting to me about this book is the blend of cultures. And Yang Si Chu in the end of my audiobook talks a little bit about that and a little bit about Malacca being a port town. It was a town that was earlier colonized, but it's also addressed in the book. And that's part of why this story is so wild because it's a blend of a lot of different cultures, mythology. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know if you had any feelings about that. <laughs> yeah, I did. I really noticed that. I think that a lot of this book... We'll talk later, obviously, about whether or not we think this book is feminist, but I do think that ultimately this is much more a book about colonialism than anything else, um, and a really multifaceted version of cult- of colonialism, too, because it's not just about Westerners coming in and taking over an area or a country. It's about China coming in and taking over Malaya, which is what the country was called at the time. So like we've got this really intricate blend of like all different things. So we've got Chinese culture, we've got more traditional Malaya culture, we've got through standby, we've got a look at what happens when you send children to be raised up in England because he was and so he comes back and has very different thoughts and ideas about how the world should work and is not a superstitious person. But but he was he had a very British upbringing because Mm -hmm. of all of this. So you really see like, all of the different ways in which a cultural melting pot happens. And you see that also when you go into the afterlife, because you get like a little bit of everything, a little bit of every superstition, a little bit of every story sort of like blended together. Yeah, it was interesting for me as somebody who is so who is so ignorant about East Asian cultures, and just like other like Eastern religions and things like that too. Because I know that like Buddhism and Confucianism are mentioned here. And like Buddhism is a tradition that believes in reincarnation, generally speaking, but so is Hinduism. And Mm -hmm. Malacca is also heavily influenced by Indians, it was said in the book. And it, it was just really wild. And we should state too, that our main character comes from a Chinese family. And I believe that the most of the other main characters, like the other human families that we're dealing with, also are of Chinese descent, which plays a role, I think, in the hierarchy of Moroccan life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting when you're you were talking about colonialism. So one of the things that struck me towards the beginning of this book is that the West, although it's acknowledged that like the West has colonized, the Portuguese came and colonized, now the English are colonizing. And that's generally like frowned upon the fact that they're coming in here and taking different things. They're also sort of glorified in a lot of ways by Lilan herself in some ways and by our other main characters. Mm-hmm. Like their their medicine in some ways is like fascinating to a lot of people. The fact that English women don't tolerate their husbands to have second wives. 
seems like a, I don't know, there's a lot of like coding where it seems like that our characters, our main characters view the West as more quote unquote civilized. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Or at the very least, I think that there's um, a potential layer of like jealousy in the way that our characters talk about it in the sense that like many of the characters who talk about the fact that English women don't tolerate like second and third wives are potentially second and third wives themselves and unhappy in that position and things like that. Or I think that this book leans really heavily on superstition and storytelling. And there's a lot of characters who want to break free from that, which we see a lot through, I think, both Lilan and Lim Tian Bai as well. And like in their relationship. And Lilan's father, too. He's yeah, really good and, superstition. Yeah, and his father or her father. So there's a lot going on, I think, with a desire to create a different cultural identity for some people and leaning in some cases on Western culture to like do that to a certain extent, if that makes sense. At the very least for uh, Lim Tian Bai, I think that's true. I think that's true too. So I think what's interesting to me now, and I'm forming this as you have said that, and what made it striking to me while reading the book is that Tian Bai and also Lilan's father, I think, are predominantly the two characters that I think of when I think of, like, this glorification of the West. Mm-hmm. They are both also non-superstitious. And towards the beginning of the book, Lilan talks about, she, she compares this sort of ideology of her father, who is completely anti-superstition, and the ideology of her ama is su- superstitious. And Lilan sees a world in which both the science and superstition can exist. And for me, I think that's coded as being very masculine versus feminine because Ama is the most feminine sort of like figure in Leilan's life. Yeah. I think that a lot of this book for her is about like being torn very much between British and Western culture and the culture that she was raised in. So I have two passages here that I think are relevant. One of them is on page eight and one of them is on page nine. So the first passage is. I was not sure that I believed in a god of smallpox. It didn't seem right to me that a god should stoop himself to go around blowing smallpox in through windows and doors at people. The foreign doctors at the hospital talked about disease and quarantining outbreaks, an explanation that seemed far more reasonable to me. Sometimes I thought I would become a Christian, like the English ladies who went to the Anglican church every Sunday. I had never been, but it looked so peaceful from the outside. And their graveyard, with its neat green sward and tiny gravestones under the frangipani trees, seemed a far more comfortable place than the wild Chinese cemeteries perched on hillsides. So, like, on the one hand, we see this sort of, like, allure of Western culture, I think, which I think is really symbolized by Tian Bai throughout the entire novel. Like he's very much like, and her father, like very much those kind of characters. But there is a bit of a love triangle that ends up happening here. Or I don't know if it's like a traditional love triangle, but she's pulled between two different men at the end of the story. And the man that she ends up with is Erlong, who is a literal dragon. And in very, like in many ways, really like in, emphatically symbolizes like Chinese culture, right? So she ends up, and that's who she ends up with. She marries him. At the end of the book is, I, it's got one of my favorite ending lines. When Erlong comes for his answer, I will tell him that I've always thought he was a monster and that I want to be his bride. So like she really leans into 
her own culture there and ends up like resisting that. But I, I think that that reading is an op- oversimplification. I think that you're ultimately right and that she sees a way for like these disparate ideas to come together and create something new, which I feel like is exemplified by the passage I wanted to talk about on page nine, where she's talking a lot about comparing things in China and Malaya. So it says... I knew I ought to be married someday, a day that was drawing ever closer, but life was not yet too restrictive. Compared to how things are done in China, we were very, fairly casual in Malaya. Locally born Chinese women did not bind their feet. Indeed, the other races looked upon foot binding as strange and ugly, crippling a woman and making her useless for work in the home. When the Portuguese first landed in Malacca more than 300 years ago, there were already Chinese here, though the earliest Chinese who came to seek their fortunes brought no woman. Some took Malay wives and the resulting mix of cultures was known as Peranakan. Later, settlers sent for women from home who were often older, divorced, or widowed, for who else would undertake such a long and perilous voyage? So we were less rigid here, and even an unmarried girl of good family might walk in the streets, accompanied, of course, by a chaperone. She's already setting up this like expectation of a blending of cultures because that's how she sees Malaya. So like there's this real, I think tension throughout the story between like the dichotomy of British and Western culture versus like this mix of like Chinese and Malayan culture. And I think that as Western readers, it's easy to be like, she chooses one or the other. When in Mm -hmm. actuality, I think most of the book is coded to say that for Leilan, at least like the way forward is this, this meshing, even though she ends up going with Erlong instead of Tian Bai at the end. I think that's a really, really interesting reading. And I think, too, about that passage that you read for us, one of the things she highlighted was how Malaysian women, in fact, get even more freedoms than traditional Chinese women. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that struck me about the ending, because she does choose between two men, and she's kind of given the choice, like, there, there is no choice for her outside of marriage, right? But she is told that no matter who she chooses, she's going to be able to have an element of freedom. She might be able to go get an education if she marries Tianbai. And if she's with Erlang, she's going to have a life of adventure. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really interesting too. Like she chose her own culture, but in relation to that feminine masculine coding as well, she also chose like a new path forward as a woman. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also interesting because the right to choose is something that she always felt that she had that somebody else might not. And when that's threatened to be taken away from her, it causes her, understandably, as modern readers, a lot of distress. Like on page 52, it says, He passed a hand over his face. Leilan, I realize I haven't been doing my duty by you. Why do you say that? You're almost 18. Most girls your age are already married or at least betrothed. I kept silent. When I was younger, I had sometimes teased my father and asked him about my marriage. He had replied that I was not to worry about it, and he was sure that I would be happy. I had somehow come to assume that he meant to allow me to choose. After all, my parents' marriage had been by all accounts very happy, maybe too happy in retrospect. And ultimately, she's placated because the person that she was secretly betrothed to the entire time was Tian Bai. And at this point, she was still enamored with him. But this idea of, like, the right to choose was a freedom she thought she would always have, right? And it's not until this conversation with her father that things start to change. 
And after that, she starts taking more and more drastic actions to, A, get rid of the haunting of this ghost man that she has no interest in, but also to, like, continue to be able to have that freedom. Because for her, like, she doesn't want to be haunted anymore. In theory, she could have exercised the ghost, but she also wanted to know what actually happened because there's suspicion that Tian Bai killed his cousin. And she wants to know the truth. Like she wants to be able to make an informed decision. And while she doesn't want to believe that her, that Tian Bai is capable of that, she needs to know, right? Like she, she has to understand the full scenario before she ties herself to him. Yeah, she definitely does. Sorry. I was checking uh, Tian Ching's name. Yeah, so there's always an element of choice in a lot of ways. I think Maggie and I were discussing this off air because, you know, at the end of the episode, we usually discuss whether or not this is a feminist book. And both of us were really struggling with that element, especially because we don't read a lot of books on this podcast about relationships. Mm-hmm. Or the relationships are so central. And the relationships in this book are kind of secondary, but they are also very much like important and important to our main character's fate. Yeah, and it does yeah. end up being a love triangle, too. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, she, throughout this book, despite the fact that she, like, needs a man in some retrospect to go forward with her life, she is fighting for agency throughout, even from the beginning, um, trying to fight against Tian Qin, but also, did I say that right? I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Tian Qin, Qin, but also because she's trying to like fully vet the boy that she does like yeah absolutely and like she goes then on a very masculine adventure i feel like the western equivalent of it it would be like the hero's journey Mm -hmm. um and she takes a lot of risks and uh she gets herself into some really dangerous situations she's imprisoned multiple times she's threatened to be tortured Something I appreciated about this story was for a while she was really leaning on Erlong and or is it Erlong or Erlang? Do you remember from the book? I've heard Erlong is the way that the author pronounced it. Pronounces Great. it. <laughs> so uh she really relies on him to help her get out of sticky situations, which for a while I was kind of like, eh, I don't really like Leilon being painted as like the damsel in distress. But then during one of their like final adventures, she saves him and saves his life. And it's like this very funny moment almost because she's like sitting there yelling at him to like, get up, get up, get up. And she refuses to let him die and like leave him behind. And for me, that really like saved, I think that aspect of the story because she also has her own she simultaneously is able to rely on others and like use the connections that she's built for herself for good, which is, I think, a very like feminine social skill of like a way to be a hero and an advocate for yourself. But then also she does have like this rather almost masculine moment, right? Where she like hauls him up on the horse and she ties him down and like they take off. That for me, I felt it like felt very balanced there and it made her... I think feel less like a damsel in distress at a part of the story where like, if she was saved by somebody else one more time, I was going to scream, you know? (laughs) Well, to be fair too, though, like in Erlong's relationship throughout the book with Leland, 
he doesn't really treat her like a damsel in distress. Like he saves her sometimes, but like he is very reluctant about it. And he's also given her a lot of agency, probably more like much more agency than she feels like she knows what to do with. To do with. Yeah. yeah. Because he's, sending her out and making her an agent. So like, I didn't really ever view her that much as a damsel in distress. And one of the things I will say about this book, even though it did end up being relationship centric, which is not typically my cup of tea reading until very recently, apparently, is that like neither of the boys that she's with really treat her as though she is somebody who needs to be saved. There is like some aspect, like a, I want to be with you, or I'm not going to just like let you die because I recognize that you're in a shitty situation. But they both seem to like respect her enough to like let her, I don't know, have equal say over the situation and the partnership and whatever path they decide to go down. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's true. I think for me, and this is more like of a plot nitpick, I guess, than anything else, the places where it felt like a damsel in distress situation were the times where like, I couldn't see her getting out of a situation unless Erlong was able to use his magic, you know? So like specifically when she gets imprisoned in the house, um, the limb house in the afterlife, and she's like thrown in a dark room with no windows and essentially being told like, we're going to torture you by like not feeding you or giving you water or anything because you'll still feel all of that pain, even though it won't kill you. Like, I think that one specifically comes to mind to me because, like, I didn't see how she was going to get out of that unless he came to re- came to rescue her, which, on the one hand, he comes. On the other hand, he makes her wait. <laughs> like, Well, to be fair, though, while that's happening, I think she's also, like, she's also trying to dig her way out. And this isn't, you know, this would still be a rescue situation, but Auntie Number 3, who we find out is actually Leilan's mom, she would have come, she came and looked for her after she had already escaped. There are different people who want to help her, but I didn't, I guess I just didn't read it as much as a damsel situation because like throughout, I don't know, sometimes you are in a shitty situation and like you do need help, right? But she still wasn't, I didn't ever really feel like she was completely robbed of her agency no matter what situation we were in. Yeah, I guess I can see that. This is also the third time that I've read the book. So I think (laughs) that for me, there was just a certain aspect of like, I know it's going to get good. And I know that she's like really going to take center stage as like the hero hero. And Mm -hmm. I think that I just couldn't wait for that to happen this go around. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. I'm only on uh, reading number two. So (laughs) It was just one of those things where, like, again, it's, like, nitpicky, but I do appreciate the fact that, like, the author was able to balance that idea of, like, being able to use one's, like, community and social skills in that way as, like, a positive thing. And, like, but then also she does have, like, her big moment, too, you know, where it's, like, a very traditional, like, hero thing as well. I get that. I also really quickly want to go back a little bit and touch about because we were talking about femininity versus masculinity within this book touch on Leland's own version of like and views of femininity because I felt like she kind of came across especially in the beginning as being kind of like a I'm not like other girls girl and there were yeah so she's really her mama always tells her that she needs to like spend more time doing feminine arts and like domestic arts 
versus like reading, which is what she generally spends her time doing. And it's talked a lot about like how she has a sharp mind and she doesn't really enjoy feminine art. So she doesn't do them. And the views of all of the other women, with the exception of Ama and of auntie number three, I feel are dropped throughout this book. Like there's a lot of really like, shallow women and women that are depicted as being um shallow but also um insidious there's a lot of insidious women as well and that paired with the fact that Leilan is also exceptionally beautiful kind of rubbed me the wrong way oh see I don't think I read it like that I think that for me she read less as like not being like other girls so much as she chafed around the idea that she had to like all of those things because she was a girl. And I think part of the reason I read it more that way is because she does express at the beginning of the book, I have one passage here, but there are quite a few, some like interest in more traditionally feminine things and like admiring those things. So on page 24, she, or page 23, she talks about the moon. It says, The Chinese considered the moon to be yin, feminine and full of negative energy as opposed to the sun that was yang and exemplified masculinity. I liked the moon with its soft silver beams. It was at once elusive and filled with trickery, so that lost objects that had rolled into the crevices of her room were rarely found, and books read in its light seemed to contain all sorts of fanciful stories that were never there now the next morning. Ama said I must not sew by moonlight, it might ruin my eyesight, thus jeopardizing the chance of a good marriage. So I think for me, like, she admired the fact that, like, femininity didn't always have to be what society said it had to be. And, like, that was what she wanted out of her life. Although I do agree with you about the fact that, like, many of the other female characters in this story are painted as being insidious. But then there are, you know, quite a few that aren't, like... Her mother turns out to be a very, like, kind and caring person who has a very complicated backstory. And even the supposed, or not even the supposed, even the murderer of Tan Ching, Ya Hong, it wasn't like a malicious or insidious murder, which sounds <laughs> weird to say, but like it was, it was accidental in the sense that while she was poisoning him, her intention wasn't to kill him. So like there's... I mean, that's true. That's what she says. But Leilan also says she's, like, not entire. Leilan doesn't necessarily believe that. Yeah, yeah. Which I think it's is true. important. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying, like, I think that, like, there are more characters. I think that there are some female characters that are, like, more complicated than just being, like, insidious tricksters, you know? I think that all of the characters are fairly complicated. I just don't think there's a ton of female solidarity in this book. And I think that Leilan herself, her positive relationships are with Ama, who's an old woman, an old mother-like figure, with auntie number three, who turns out to be her mother, but is also an old woman. And therefore, like, yeah. because they are old women, they are both, like, robbed of some sort of femininity, right? Because they're no longer beautiful. Um, uh, literally for auntie number three, because she gives away her youth to save Leilan as a child from smallpox. Yes, and beauty is, like, really emphasized in this book. And then there is, um, what was her name? Yan Hong. So then there's her, and, like, our main character, Lilan, does really like her, but 
she is also a murderer. And like, regardless, Lilan still likes her, but she also isn't going to be around. Like, even if Lilan had chose to uh, marry Tianfei, she chose to leave. So like this one friend that we see, this is the only character that we see her yeah. like having a real friendship with that's a woman, is going to be gone. And then our other female characters are the aunt, the or not the aunt, the, the concubine. They're, what's her name? The ghost. Then, yes, who is seen as very shallow and girlish. Like she embodies what it means to be girlish. And is painted really horribly um, because she's also very insidious. Yeah, she betrays Leilan in like the most intense way and steals her body. Yes, Tian Qing's mother. And who's the other one? We have the concubine. Oh, this the second wife when she's in the ghost world, who is a lot like fun. fun. Yeah. 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 I see what you mean. There, You're right that there isn't a lot of female solidarity that's for sure and also okay so here's the thing though i don't think that necessarily is a bad thing i think that there is something to be said about hierarchy within different power structures but one of the things that really got at me is that Lilan is constantly praised for being intelligent like a man yeah and is beautiful so like yes she can have femininity but a lot of her supposed femininity relies on her physical appearance yeah, 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 that's true. She has otherwise mostly masculine traits. At least that's what's praised by others in the story. So I don't know. I just wanted to unpack that a little bit because I think for me as a reader, like it, it kind of irks me a little bit when our main character is like praised on something so superficial. But, and it makes sense, especially during the time period, and also makes sense because, like, it gives her a an element of power that she can later utilize, and it also mm-hmm. sets the plot up because otherwise, Tianqing wouldn't have wanted to like force her into a ghost marriage. Like, there it's are a lot true. Of- it's all based on the fact that she's pretty. That's yeah. it. Well, yeah, but that makes sense though, right? Because like he just sees her. Like it, it it's necessary for the plot. I just yeah, like. I know that as a modern and Western reader, like one of my big issues throughout life is constantly having to be like, I am more than my appearance and it's okay if I don't look pretty today. And like, that's not always a, an outward thing, but like, that's something I'm constantly having to unpack because I feel like for most people who are women, that's like what we're told is our worth. And it just so happens to be that our main character has that worth already. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for me, I just read it as being, I can see how like within the like cultural constellation, like the ecosystem that's happening happening here, it does set her out to be sort of like a, not like other girls main character. I think that just when I was in her head, I didn't necessarily get like that vibe coming off of like how she felt like she fit into the world, if that makes sense. Like, I think that she felt as a character just really restricted by what society wanted her to be and I think she pushed back against the appearance thing as well a little bit like when she goes to the Lim family mansion in the real world for the first time she like doesn't she almost goes out of her way to like not make a good impression and part of it is because she doesn't want this like ghost marriage 
But part of it is because of the fact that she's hungry and she wants to eat and like, fuck the fact that it'll make her look less attractive if uh, she like eats her fill, you know, of this like really delicious food that she doesn't have access to at home and stuff like that. So like, I think that even though she's traditionally beautiful, there are ways in which even though they're little, she does like push up against that a bit. That made it feel to me at the very least less. I'm not like other girls. Yeah, I get that. That was just one thing I wanted to address. What else do you want to talk about? There's so much here. Let me, let me scroll through my, my book here a little bit. I actually want to talk about her really insidious relationship with Tian Ching because, like, we don't, act- we haven't actually addressed how fucked up it is, like, what he does to her. <laughs> because essentially what happens is that in life, right, he saw her at uh, a festival that they were both attending and decided that, like, that's the one for me. Even though she was betrothed to his cousin, and he knew that, even though she didn't. And so after his death, he starts haunting his mother initially, and is and that's the way he gets the whole, like, ghost bride thing started is because he's manipulating his mother through her dreams and then he to me like this was a really violating scene because when he because then he infiltrates Leilan's dreams and starts being like oh well we're just like betrothed right like he gaslight he tries to gaslight her into it essentially and just be like well I'm here to court you because I'm I'm going to like ask you to be my fiance so like that's the way it starts but when she um, very clearly, very forcibly says no multiple times, like doesn't want to be touched, all of that stuff. He just gets more and more and more aggressive, both in the dreams and when they are together in the afterlife um, and tries to just be like, well, we're already engaged. Like this is already happening. Like you have no choice here. Like he violates her in the sense that he like infiltrates her psyche to the point where she has to leave her body to deal with it, which to me felt very symbolic. And I want to get your take on that. And then essentially like kidnaps her and gaslights her. (laughs) Well, kidnap is a little, she says it's kidnapping, but it, she, it's complicated on that front. And I don't know, that whole thing just felt so gross and aggressive to me. And I think that it's worth talking about that aspect of the book. Yeah. He definitely, is not at all interested in her consent. Or he kind of pretends to be towards the beginning because obviously it's like consent would be nice, but he continually tries to trick her into it. I think that I had less, like I think I paid less attention to that because it just seemed so very evil to me and more attention to who he was as a character and like how he was being portrayed. Yeah, I don't know. He's... He's portrayed as very ugly and also as being, like, chubby, which I don't know what to make of that. Like, that, it felt a little fat shamey to me. But also, yeah, what he does is incredibly fucked up. And it does mirror a lot of real women's experiences with men in a non-fantasy setting. Yeah, for sure. I think that something I found interesting about it was, A, you're totally right. Like, if we're talking about the fact that Leilon is beautiful and... Uh, has all of these other, like, amazing qualities about her that gets her praised. Tian Ching is almost, like, the absolute opposite of that, in the sense that he wasn't considered to be conventionally attractive at the time and was a terrible person and was thought by everyone to be a bad person. Like, the only person who misses him in death is his mother. Like, 
his father doesn't even care because he wasn't good at anything not only is he a bad person he just like wasn't good at anything (laughs) and he was kind of portrayed as being almost like a spoiled little crybaby and like just very like mean and aggressive and nitpicky so like uh if we're talking about like the masculine energy in this book for the most part we're like held up between tian bai who is like all of the good masculine things and also very attractive attractive enough that when fan takes over leilon's body she mentions the fact that like she's lucky that he's hot essentially um and like tian ching as just being like absolutely the opposite of that and like insidious but then also you have the third masculine energy of erlong where He's also considered to be very beautiful, but he's also a dragon and very otherworldly and, like, has, I think, other energy going on there that, like, I'm not entirely sure how to unpack in, like, this little triangle. I mean, he also, he doesn't show his face for the majority of his time in the book. And It's like, true. She has to ask him explicitly at the very end to see his face. So I think that, too... Like, he does happen to be beautiful, but I think that, too, is important because, like, when she's falling in love with him, it it doesn't have to, it's not about the superficial sort of thing. Um, yeah, that is weird. So, yeah, I guess, do you think that, I would think that Tian Qing doesn't necessarily present what we would consider traditionally masculine uh, behavior other than the fact that he, you know, is, like, going after women without their consent that I feel like he's painted as being, like, not a real man. I think that that's how the book tries to paint him. I think that how I view him is as somebody who abuses his power over and over again. And in that sense, to me, he reads very (laughs) traditionally masculine. (laughs) That is toxic masculinity, friends. Yeah, but I guess also, too, like, I think within his physical depiction, like, that itself is also not necessarily traditionally how we view, uh, like, the typical masculinity, right? Because you said it yourself, like, he's painted as being a crybaby and the fact that, like, he, he's, he looks like a boy, right? Because he has acne and he's chubby, like, that somehow ties into the chubby, uh, not the chubby, it ties into the spoiledness in that sense but also like it's not considered traditionally masculine because then he can't be strong and I think that I don't know like I don't know how to unpack the physical appearance because I think also like the non-consent conversation is a more important one I just like I have I feel like that's more clear-cut for me whereas like this I don't know how to unpack no I totally agree right like the non-consent aspect of this is like what makes him It's what drives home the fact that he's actually a bad person, I would Mm -hmm. say, because it is just so, like, explicitly gross and evil what he's doing, right? Like, it's very mind-fucky, literally, (laughs) and gaslighty, and just, like, I think it's easy to just be, like, this shows off so many aspects of toxic masculinity that he's absorbed. But I think you're right that, like, the appearance thing, while less important in that sense, is more difficult to pick apart And it does make you wonder, like, how much of this, like, I don't know, it makes it makes you almost almost want to see a little bit more about what his life like was was like when he was like growing up. uh, And how much of this was because of like, potentially like mistreatment while he was growing up that like, warped him a little bit. I don't know, because like, I don't want to justify the fact that like, being mistreated gives you 
the right to mistreat other people because it doesn't. (laughs) And that's also a very toxic masculinity thing. But like the way they all talk about him with such hatred does make you wonder a little bit like what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's definitely a deliberate choice and he probably is like a not nice person. (laughs) He continues to make not nice choices in his life because in the real world, there are lots of people who are treated poorly because of their appearance and still decide to be nice humans because they have this thing called empathy. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I guess I just like, if we're looking at it from a masculinity perspective, like, yeah. As we've said before, I think that he is depicted as weak and, like, not a real man. But also that is paired with, like, this very real uh, thing that happens when we consider masculinity and hierarchy in the way that it plays out in the real world. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely what I was trying to say. I feel like the, the, to, that put together, they almost make up two sides, two sides of the same coin of masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. Like... And both of them, in this case, end up being a little bit toxic, right? Like, really explicitly, I would say, with Tian Ching. But even, like, the way that Tian Bai talks about him and, like, puts him down for not being masculine and stuff like that, right? Like, I think that with those two characters, you get to see a much fuller, I guess, critique, I guess, of what it means to be masculine and, like, how toxic masculinity can play out in these scenarios, in a way that's negative for everyone involved. Yeah, and it's interesting to me too, as like Tian Bai, as the symbolism for like maybe a more Western figure too, a Western figurehead, because mm-hmm. Tian Bai isn't explicitly bad in a lot of ways, but there's a reason that Lilan chooses not to have him. And like part of that is that like he doesn't really know her, which is fair because he doesn't, he didn't really get a chance to like learn about her. He did have an affair with a Portuguese girl. Mm-hmm. Like he's not a bad guy, but like the fact that he maybe symbolizes this colonialism, I think plays into that idea of this is what we have for real world masculinity. Like you can either be this, you can either be like this gross little like creepy crawly thing who's like really pushing it um, in terms of boundary and like trying to go about getting power in these really harmful, hurtful ways. Or you can have like somebody who is born into just being perfect, um, but also like is complicit in a lot of ways with these horrible power structures. Or you, I guess you can do what Lilan did and just like not choose men and instead choose a fucking god. Yeah, and instead go the dragon route. No, but I think that that's a really important thing. So like on page 285, um, Lilan sees Tian Bai for the first time in a long time. I think that they might be in a dream. Yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what happens, which I think perfectly plays out your point in the sense of like, you get this or this and neither side is great. So like, um, I heard you were going to be married. I said at last. He took a step toward me, then another. Yes, that's right. Oh, I was crestfallen. Congratulations then. Thank you. There was a glint in his eyes, though he was enjoying a private joke. Then he slipped his arms around me, drawing me against him. I think there are better ways you congratulate you can congratulate me, don't you? Dazed, I couldn't resist. I lifted my face to him and felt the touch of his breath and his lips as he brushed them against my neck. At the very last instant, I twisted away. But your fiance? What about her? He buried his face in my hair and ran his hands through it, discarding the few hairpins that were left. My hands slid across his chest and stopped. 
Wait, I said breathlessly. Don't you care what she thinks? Of course I care. Then why are you doing this? I pushed him away with an effort, but he was still smiling. It was beginning to make me angry. You're just like your cousin, I said. I suppose it doesn't matter how many concubines you have. What are you talking about? He looked surprised. I mean, what do you think your fiance would say if she saw you? I don't think she would mind. Well, I mind, I said angrily. And then a little further down on the page, uh, we end up with, what's the matter with you? He said, I don't even know who you're marrying. A strange look appeared on Tian Bai's face. You know who I'm marrying. Then say it. Just say it. I'm marrying you, Leilan. And like this whole thing, like really rubbed me the wrong way. (laughs) Because like he's, it's like he's playing almost like a private joke on her and she doesn't really get it. And like, it's unclear from her perspective whether he like is actually surprised that she didn't know uh or like was playing with her and like it just felt very weirdly predatory and like a power play in a way that Tian Bai doesn't usually feel like in this story and to me it just really felt like this glimpse of like huh you know like it just really made me question him and it was like sort of played off as being romantic in the end because he is engaged to her and it's like this reunion moment but like something about that scene really just did not sit right with me like that was one of the moments with Tian Bai where I was like mm, I, I don't I don't I don't like this like I don't like you I think that you should just communicate clearly <laughs> instead of going straight to the kissing and the sexies <laughs> for a second like which, like, I think also is kind of confusing because part of the reason things are different with Air Long is also because, like, he awakens a sort of sexual energy in her. And it becomes a joke at the end because he kisses her with tongue and she, like, doesn't understand. And I put my tongue in your mouth is the quote at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it comes back later. He kisses her again and he asks if he can. And she go- and he goes, I'm- and he goes, are you going to be okay with this? And she goes, why? And he goes, because I'm going to put the tongue in. <laughs> But, like, it's much more communicative, their whole, like, back and forth. And with Tian Bai, it's just, like, take and assume, I guess. is And assume that you get what's happening. And that's what bothered me. Okay, I understand what you're saying. That's really interesting. Because, like, during my first read of this book, I was kind of mad that she ended up with Erlang before. Because I wasn't reading it uh, through a critical lens. Because Erlang is, like, such a dick face. <laughs> most of the book and I was like this is just nagging like he's just nagging her into liking him um but that scene that Maggie just read like for context in case anyone's listening and hasn't read the book or needs a refresher that scene that she just read like Dianbai is okay with like the physical affection because Lilan or who he thinks is Lilan has given it to him before. Like the person that set up the engagement was Ben and Lilan's body. But I think that's like, I think that's part of it, right? Like he doesn't need Lilan. He just needs a pretty girl who seems Mm -hmm. smart. And like Ben herself is very different than Lilan, but he doesn't notice the difference. Um, Yeah. And he's known her about as long as Erlang has known Lilan, too. And you could argue, too, that because Erlang and Lilan went on an adventure, like, the feelings are more intense for whatever reason. Um, But, like, neither of them have known her that long. 
So like he has had the moment to like kind of figure out who she is, but doesn't really seem interested and is kind of like too wrapped up in his own world. But I felt like in the book was generally presented as like a good guy. But I do think that like now that we're looking at it through a critical lens, it is worth mentioning that like even though he's presented as a good guy, he's a guy that's complicit and that doesn't really know her um, and doesn't really make an effort to. Yeah, I think that was the thing that like, got me about it I guess was that like he is presented as the good guy and like for the most part it doesn't seem like he's an explicitly bad guy but he also like he's there's also moments where like they talk about the fact that like he expects his wife to stand with him and like on the one hand that's presented as being a good thing because he wants her to be like he wants her to get an education and like have more freedoms and like be able to stand as his equal in some ways but on the other hand I feel like the whole just like having expectations for what a wife should be in general like that's the complicity part that harmony was talking about like that's the part where it's like wait, maybe this whole like scenario just isn't <laughs> isn't ideal and so for me i was actually really happy the first time that uh she ended up with erlong and i think it's because even though he's a dickhead to her He also shows his cards from the beginning. Like, we know who he is the entire time, and there's never really a moment of doubt that changes that. And also, he believes in her and her strength, like, the entire time. That's part of the reason he sends her out on the mission. Like, it's part of the reason that even when he does have to come rescue her, like, it's not always particularly prompt or anything, like, which (laughs) is kind of funny. But it also kind of fucked up. But like, I think for me, there was just all of this little stuff coded into Tian Bai where it's like, he's made out to seem like the perfect husband, but like, really, he's just a cardboard figure in Leilan's life, just as she is in his. Yeah. And I think too, a part of this like journey into the shadow world, right? Like into the afterlife, as we talked about before, is like, it helps. I mean, it's a coming of age story in a lot of ways, right? Like she has to find herself and find out what she values, but also like it gives her a context for her culture and her cultural values and the things like she has to believe in this stuff, right? Like she's a part of it now. And yeah, with Erlong, um, he ends up like giving her part of his soul. So in part, she's, she's mostly human, but she also like has a really long time to live. So she's like not completely human anymore. She has, she's part otherworldly now. And Tian Bai would have never been able to appreciate that or believe that. Like there is a side of her that he would never be able to know or he thinks that she was crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And then also like when she ends up making the the decision to like not wait 50 years, it's also because Tian Bai like thinks he's in love with her but isn't and she feels like she like he deserves the chance to define somebody who will actually like love him and that he can love and but I think more importantly the fact is that like she shouldn't have to wait for 50 years just to make some other man happy right like she should just be able to take what she wants now because she has the power to and she knows that she wants it you know I get you I want to talk because we are at an hour now about death and death as symbolism you talked a little bit about her leaving her body do you want to touch on that first well i mean plot wise she spends 90 percent of the book as like a, a 
a ghost soul separated from her body, which I found was interesting symbolism, I guess, in the, in like a, a feminist lens, because there's much that she can do as like a ghost who isn't always seen that she can't do in like a physical form as a as a girl because she can't go to as many places. And even as a ghost, she still gets like, there's a whole ghost society, right? So she still gets like haggled and stuff and like uh, faces hardships for the fact that she's a girl and she's alone. But because it's death, right? Because it's the afterlife, there is more leeway for her to like make it on her own and to like use her smarts and her creativity to get through these like weird social situations that in life she never could have done if she was trying to um, like solve this murder and figure out what she was happening because she would have been so limited by her physical form as to like where she could have gone. That's really interesting because that's a really interesting take on a trope that Maggie and I talk about sometimes on the podcast and sometimes off air or you will hear about in future uh, episodes about the woman who like the feminist trope in which an o- the only way a woman can escape her circumstances is through death. And it like part of Lelon, Lelon half dies. And part of it is like kind of suicide, like kind of accidental suicide, except it's not really suicide because she doesn't actually die. But like she takes too much of her medicine, right? So that is a way to flip that trope. She still gets her agency, but she's not actually dead. But it's also similar in that, like, in her life, in her circumstances, she does not get to do these things. Absolutely. And I think part of what makes this story masterful in that sense, in flipping the trope, is that, and I think is something unique to, like, this Eastern culture blend of, like, Malaysian and Chinese culture that we see here, is the fact that, like, the afterlife exists, right? Like, she can go and continue to have a life (laughs) uh so like her death even if she had really died like her her life in that sense wouldn't have actually stopped there Mm -hmm. and so she's able to take it as a moment of freedom even as she's fighting with all she has really to like get back into her body she's in the afterlife because she has a lot of things that she needs to do and to discover and to like figure out for like her own value system and things like that. And also because it's a murder mystery, (laughs) but like ultimately her goal is to return to the living. And I feel like the fact that she doesn't die and that Fen doesn't get her body, (laughs) like is really like the ultimate power move in that trope, because like ultimately her freedom comes in her physical body. Like she gets to go with Erlong and like have this adventure. Although I do think that that's complicated by the fact that she is, you know, she did suck 50 years of his life out of him. And so she is like also part otherworldly. So like there's changes to her physical form that like allow that to happen. But like ultimately her happy ending is in life in her physical form where she's able to take all of the power and knowledge that she gained in death and like go forth and forge new paths. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. It's also, if we're thinking about like the spirituality aspect too of like the afterlife, um, a lot of this self-discovery, like she has to take her action right out in the world in order to get her happy ending. But like a lot of that self-discovery happens almost internalized because like she's mm-hmm. not in her body. It reminds me a lot of like the concept of meditation or something, which 
I don't know enough about to speak like authoritatively on, but like that is a tradition that comes from Eastern cultures. So I do think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like she's very, she's a very reflective character. This book is really action packed and like there's a lot of plot in it. But Leela herself is very, I don't know, she's just, she like takes all of this information in and like really processes it processes it about herself in a very like emotionally intelligent sort of way even when it's overwhelming and I think that that really gets at what your sort of point is is that like it is very internalized and also like she's physically not in her body so it's internalized in a different way as well well also though it just reminds me too because I was looking for like what potential symbolism there could be for death right and like as I've talked about in the podcast at ad nauseum I'm a fucking witch. So like one of the things that we talk about and that is heavily influenced on Eastern traditions and also other traditions as well, but like a lot of the modern day practices come from Eastern is like the idea of like um, astral projection and stuff like that. And that's kind of what Leland's doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like she's literally astral projecting. So I guess like I'm just taking that and putting it like if we're going to take this story and use it as a model for the real world, like one of the morals could be that like you need to do that reflection, that self-work, that um, what we in witchcraft often call shadow work, which also kind of relates to death before you can go out there and like live, like reach self-actualization. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think also something that's worth talking about the afterlife is that the afterlife is structured just like real society. So like there's a limb mansion in the real world and there's a limb mansion in the afterlife and like all of the societal structures really are still in place and they're still players. And sometimes even more fucked up. (laughs) And sometimes even more fucked up, which I don't know that I have a ton to talk about, I guess from like a feminist lens, but I do think is an interesting aspect of the story that makes it a really compelling read because even though Leilon still has like has a lot of agency in the afterlife because she's not tethered to her physical form there are still societal codes and expectations that she has to subvert to get what she wants or like take on new and different roles like she poses as a serving girl for a while uh in the limb the limb mansion in the afterlife so like she's still limited even in the afterlife while she's fighting for her freedom by the fact that she's an unaccompanied woman as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's examine it's that. Less limit- it's less limiting because like you're dead. So like, it's not like you can bring a chaperone with you, but like there is still stuff there. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's still stuff there. And and you can also, part of it too, could be less limiting for some people because a lot of people will like, out of boredom, choose to live a different life than they would have um, in the, the world of the living. Yeah. In terms of, like, people will go and become servants just to, like, just for fun. But yeah, the the structure of the afterlife, and I think it's obviously this way because there is some, like, cultural context for it, like, burning up funeral goods, right? But, like, the yeah. poor are still poor. The hungry mm-hmm. ghosts are just left destitute. And there is very strict hierarchy. And then like within that hierarchy, there's a lot of manipulation and like, you know, manipulation of the rules, even within that set hierarchical structure. I really would love to see like a second book where we get to see Erlang and Lilan's adventures and maybe they like break the hierarchical structure and they're like, 
fuck this. There's going to be no more hungry ghosts. But of course, that wouldn't be historically accurate because I think that some of these traditions still live on today. So (laughs) in terms of like how people in different cultures view the afterlife. Yeah. And I do know that like from my version, my audiobook, uh, she talked about how this version of the afterlife isn't necessarily like one set version that is culturally viewed in Malaysia, but it's built off of a lot of different um, afterlife mythology and cultural uh, perceptions of what it should be and kind of like combined into its own unique thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was really interesting because she was able to create such a unique societal structure because she did that I think while also I feel like remaining true to like that struggle of hierarchy that exists no matter where you go and so part of the but like part of this book is that Lilong gets really good at manipulating that structure right to like making it work for her yes which can be empowering but also like hierarchy that's it's very bleak it's a very bleak (laughs) idea of afterlife yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's cool. It's a cool world mythology. The mythology world building is very cool. But um, yeah, that's depressing. All right. I think that's pretty much all I really wanted to talk about. Did you have anything else that you wanted to? No. Is this a feminist book, Maggie? You know, I think it is. Because ultimately, we are following a female protagonist who is fighting to be able to make the best choice for herself in limited circumstances. And like, it's not her fault that the circumstances are limited, you know, like, uh, and she takes power in any way she can and like finds new freedom for herself. But I do think that it is in some ways more a book about colonialism than feminism. Um, I think especially because Leilan does only change things for herself, right? Like Harmony was saying with the hierarchy thing, like she finds her own, I think, freedom and empowerment, but isn't really in a place, at least at the end of the book, as we know, to like help others sort of find that for her, for themselves as well. What do you think? I agree with everything that you said. I think for me, generally speaking, solidarity is like the real aspect, I think, and key to my idea of a feminist novel. But after unpacking this and also reading it the second time, like there are serious feminist aspects and like our definition has been consistently almost (laughs) somebody who goes beyond their societal circumstances. And Leland definitely does that. Like, yeah, there are some non-feminist elements in terms of like the way that beauty is looked at or like appearance and also in terms of the way that other women are depicted, I would say. But I do think that ultimately, like, our main character is trying to live a feminist, as as feminist of of a life as she can, given her circumstances. Yeah, but I, I agree that it's also probably more about culture and, like, finding one's cultural identity, as Maggie kind of depicted, and also colonialism, like, this blending of culture. But I would maybe categorize it more for myself, like, a, mul- a book about multiculturalism and finding your place within that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do wish that like if it were a feminist novel it would have been a bigger feminist novel in that like they killed the hierarchy but then it would be a completely different book and it is a good book as it is so homework Maggie oh what is my homework for this week 
I don't know. Usually I think about it beforehand and I have like an answer ready to go. <laughs> I guess I need a second. I guess I need a second to think. I think that I would like to learn more about multiculturalism in general and like what it means to find your to like find yourself in these circumstances because that is um you know as a as a white chick in the United States not a huge part of like my life experience and it's been a while since I did any like real critical thinking on the way that multiculturalism plays out in novels um and it's interesting and I worth thinking about so I, I think that that's where I'm I'm gonna land this week what about you I think well okay let's go back a second I think that's very interesting and I think too even though we are like privileged humans in the United States uh, generally as white people although we're in the United States so like but <laughs> but like the idea of multiculturalism I think still does exist for us and I would say that like one of the failings of the United States and what we've developed as quote-unquote like white culture is that we don't examine our ethnicities or cultural backgrounds because it's been completely whitewashed and there is just like a culture of white supremacy so like I think that well yeah that's that. why I said it's not a huge part of my personal experience yeah not that but it's I think not that, a part like, of my you experience could, you could do that like not just outside of like you could do that through yourself and not just through other people's context too is what I was gonna say yeah and that'd be interesting that's all my homework uh, I think my homework is to learn more about East Asian cultures and I'm like actually doing some homework on like global education right now for the real world. <laughs> so maybe I can blend that a little bit, learn more about East Asian cultures and more about trying to like harness global community so that we can stop very big real world problems like COVID right now, or, um, you know, climate change, which is actively burning up uh, the homes of my loved ones, Maggie included. So <laughs> that's my big homework. Very nice. Very nice. What are you reading? Oh, I'm reading, I'm reading, so I'm still reading uh, Midnight Sun by Stephanie Meyer. And I'm also reading Anne of Avalonia. And I'm reading Carmilla, which we will visit later on this month. Yes, this is true. What about you? Um, what am I reading? Am I reading anything? I don't think so because I really I like just finished the Ghost Bride this morning, so like I haven't I haven't moved on to anything else yet. I'm empty this week. That's all good. That's all good. Uh, okay, listeners, remember to rate and review us because ratings and reviews help other people find us. And you can always give us a dollar or two through our anchor page. There's a little spot that you can click on, and it will say "Help the podcast" because we love you, and uh, we also love you know, being able to feed ourselves. Cool. So have a nice day, everyone. Next week. Next week, we're talking about Mary Shelley. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. We're talking about Mary Shelley and we're reading her short story, The Invisible Girl. Is that it? Yes, that is true. <laughs> that is a true fact. All right. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. 
you can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.